0: Our world is in a state of almost universal chaos and confusion. (laughs) I was just going to say, would you agree with me? (laughs) Amen. I think it was Ronald Reagan who said status quo is Latin for the mess we're in. I don't know if he originated that, but he perpetuated that thought, and it seems to be true. So what do we do? Well, Will Rogers had an idea. He said, if stupidity got us into this mess, then why can it not get us out? And I think many of our leaders have embraced that motto. (laughs) Maybe the more ridiculous we are will somehow get us out of the mess we're in. But I've got an alternative solution, and it comes from Ephesians chapter 1, and I invite you to turn there. It has to do with the plan and purpose of God. When we started to study the book of Ephesians, we emphasized the fact that in this first chapter, Paul is laying down the philosophy that drives him, and that is Christ is all in all. Paul told us very early on that God has a plan, and the center of that plan is Jesus Christ. And ultimately, this plan will work out in such a way that Christ is in control of everything. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. That this plan, when the times have reached their fulfillment, will be put into effect. And the plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. We jump down to verse 20 and we read, that the Father has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And God has placed all things under his feet. Now, I have to say that that has not been realize to the full extent. We read in Hebrews that the times have not yet come, the very phrase that we read a moment ago from verse 10. But certainly all things are his. They belong to him and have been placed under his feet, waiting for the appointed time. He is the appointed head over everything for the church. He is universally the head of all things, and he is specifically the, the leader of the church, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There is nothing outside of Christ's presence. There is nothing beyond his control. He owns it all. And that, my friend, is very encouraging in a messed up, chaotic, confused world. But the thing that we, I think, need to meditate on today is something that perhaps we passed by rather quickly, and it's found in this phrase, the end of verse 22 and the beginning of verse 23, that Jesus Christ is the head over everything for the church, which is his body. The church is the body of of Christ. That may seem at first like a rather strange phrase, and by the way, although it is found um, many times in the New Testament, it only comes, humanly speaking, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It is perhaps the most revealing metaphor that exists. Now we know that the body is that material part of a living being, both humans and animals. Sometimes we use the phrase body to refer to a mass of matter, like the celestial bodies in heaven or a large body of water. But usually, when we're talking about a body, if it's not in the human literal sense, it is in the metaphorical spiritual or uh, general sense, abstract sense of a people gathered as a collective unit, a group that is connected perhaps with organization and a similar purpose. We talk about the legislative body or in academia, the student body. And so there is a connection, sometimes organized with a similar purpose that pulls these people together in a collective, the body. Sometimes we use the term body to refer to richness and fullness as in selling shampoo that will give you full body in your hair. Or we talk about oil viscosity or the flavor of wine being rich, robust, and having full body. How do I know that? I read that somewhere. But the church is called the body of Christ. And I think in some way, pulls in a lot of these rich meanings from the term we often use. The church is a collective unit with a similar purpose, with an intimate connection to its head and to one another. It implies cooperation and unity and interdependence, and it describes a rich fullness that life should be experienced the way life should be truly experienced. Now jump over to chapter three in the book of Ephesians just for a moment and look at verse 10. This is Ephesians three, verse 10. It says that God's intent, what is that? His purpose. The very purpose we've been talking about in chapter one. It is God's intent that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, what is that? The wisdom of God coming from every angle, like light going into a prism and refracted in so many different variegated colors. So the wisdom of God is multifaceted. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to God's eternal plan, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is he going to do that? Through the church, which is his body. And then when you jump down to the end of chapter 3, verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is it is at work within us to him be glory where where in the church that is god has so ordained that his manifold wisdom and his impeccable majestic glory should be on display in the church When you think about it, this is amazing. And perhaps the clue to understanding how this is done is in that wonderful, beautiful metaphor, the church is the body of Christ. Now let me remind you that church is not so much location or organization as it is congregation. It is a people-gathered, for a specific purpose, with a unique, connective uh, relationship with the head and with one another, who want to richly live life to its fullest and impact our world. Because the church is not somewhere we go. The church is something we are. Looking at this metaphor just for a moment this morning, let's ask ourselves what is this picture all about? This picture of the church as the body of Christ because as we return back to chapter one, there is a very interesting and sometimes confusing phrase where it says in verse 23, this is Ephesians 1:23, the church is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. And the question is this, and it's very difficult in the original grammar to determine whether this, the church is active or passive. Is the church actively in some way filling up and completing Christ, which sounds like heresy, or is the church filled by and completed by Christ? Someone put it this way, are are we the container in which Christ fills us up? Or is Christ the container and we somehow fill him up and complete him? I bring this up because theologians are divided on this in some amazing ways and surprising ways. For instance, John Calvin says this, By this phrase, the word fullness means that our Lord Jesus Christ, even God his Father, account themselves imperfect unless they are joined to us, the church. As if a father would say, my house is empty to me because I have no children in it. Or a husband would say, I am incomplete. I am only half a man when my wife is not present. After the same manner, God says that he does not consider himself full and perfect except by gathering us to himself and by making us one with himself. Now please know that I'm not saying that God is less than perfect. He is totally perfect. But we also know that God condescends at times to our level for ministry as Jesus did in the Incarnation. And if indeed God is saying, and, and truly we know that Christ fills us and Christ fills the church as the head fills and directs the body, but it seems to imply here that the body of Christ is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. There's a hint of this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. Have you ever read this phrase, Colossians 1 24? Paul says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh, my body, what is still lacking in regard to the sufferings of Christ. And here he mentions the same metaphor, body, in Christ. It seems to be that we might be able to say in some weird or unusual sense, the church completes Christ. And maybe that unusual sense is in the fact that we are the body of Christ. I remember hearing Stuart Briscoe, who was pastor of Elmbrook Church in Wisconsin. Now the senior pastor is one of our own. Jason Webb is leading that church. But Stuart Briscoe, well-known author and speaker, said, years ago, they decided to build a new church building, and so they called an architect to come in and give them some direction. And the architect said to the entire congregation, I would love for everyone, anyone, to come to me and to share with me their ideas of how the new church needs to be built, which to me sounds like a ridiculous idea. Not that you don't have some good ideas, but imagine how many ideas come in, and how are you going to please everyone? So he filled legal pad after legal pad. And finally, he asked Pastor Briscoe, what do you think we should do in building this new worship center? And he says, well, I think there ought to be three things. Number one, there should be circular seating, because that's the way you are closest to everyone when you're preaching. The pulpit should be in the geographical center of the auditorium. And that's exactly the way they built the church. And then he said this to the architect, and there should be a gallery for the spirits. The architect looked up from his legal pad and said, excuse me, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, well, everything has to do with bodies, Briscoe said. I mean, we're, we're building this building for bodies, right? We need a roof to keep the bodies dry and seats so the bodies can sit and aisleways so the bodies can move and heat and air so the bodies are comfortable. It seems like the great expense in building this auditorium has to do with the bodies. Now, I have a way to save a lot of money. Let's not build it for bodies. Let's build a gallery for the spirits. It could be much smaller, no windows, no seats, no roof. He said, I still don't understand what you're talking about. He said, oh, I'm doing this for all of those who have said to me, Pastor, we won't be able to be with you this Sunday but we will be with you in spirit. (laughs) The architect looked up at him and said, is this some kind of British humor? And he said, yes. (laughs) And you have no responsibility to respond. But then the architect said something very interesting. If you aren't there in body, you aren't there, period. Period. And Briscoe said he thought about that a little bit afterward, and he came to the conclusion the body is the means by, whereby a spiritual entity functions in a physical environment. And if you ain't there in body, you ain't there at all. And could that mean that we are the body of Christ? Christ is present in the world, right? But he isn't here in his resurrected body. He's here by the Spirit, but the Spirit fills us up. And could it be that the presence of Christ in the world today is here in the body of Christ? And that we are to act and represent Jesus in this world as if he were here. So we go from this idea of picture to this idea of purpose. What is the body to do? Well, the body is to represent Jesus Christ. The body is to carry out the eternal plan that God had initiated. In fact, one of the most exciting things, one of the most exhilarating things for a church to grasp is this concept that we are Christ, in the world today. In war-torn Germany during World War II, there was a statue of Christ with his arms out. Come unto me, I think, was written underneath the statue, but in the bombing, the hands of Christ were taken off that statue. And someone changed the sentence underneath to read, not come unto me, but Christ has no hands. But ours. We are the body of Christ. And it is the purpose that we, as the body of Christ, should act like Christ wherever we are. Now, we learned in Ephesians chapter 1 that those saints were in Ephesus, but they were also in Christ. And we have the same dual geographical location. We are in Christ spiritually and we are in Lansing, or the greater Lansing area, physically. And what we need to do, then, is embrace seriously Paul's concept, not only of picture, but purpose of this metaphor, and that we need to be the church. We need to be the church. By the way, that's a a rather familiar phrase that is used in sports psychology at times when you're involved in a sport and your coach tells you to be the ball. I have no idea what that means, be the ball, except be all here, be all in, be concentrating on the game. And when the Bible tells us that we are the church to be the church, then what we need to do is understand this great concept and all that the metaphor implies And do it. By the way, a body is not stagnant unless it's unhealthy. It should be on the move, right? Now, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, the church is also called a building. Actually, the church is what lives in the building, or God lives in the building of his church. But it's still the people. It's not brick and mortar, But I think the the image of the body of Christ is even more powerful when we think of the fact that this body is to be on the move. How sad it is when a body is stagnant and cannot move. Spiritual arthritis has inflicted many local churches to where the body no longer is able to respond to the commands of Christ. Isn't it interesting that when you study biblical church history, you can go to the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and you have volume one and volume two of church history. You ever looked at it that way? That's because Luke wrote the Gospel according to Luke. But he is also the author of the book of Acts. Same author. In fact, if you just add verses together, Luke has written more of the New Testament than any other human writer. And what is the gospel of Luke? Well, it's about the life of Christ. But this is rather interesting. Go to the book of Acts just for a moment and look at the very first verse. In my former book, Luke says, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now that's somewhat interesting because when you talk about a beginning, you usually talk about those early parts, but the gospel, according to Luke, gives you the whole life of Christ on planet Earth, right? From being born to being baptized to accomplishing miracles to dying on the cross, being buried, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, it's all there. But he says this is what Jesus began to do in my former book. And now I want to write, by way of implication, what Jesus is continuing to do through the apostles. And that's why when we studied the book of Acts, we said that really this isn't the acts of the apostles, this is the acts of Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit who was working through the apostles. That's the real title, but it takes too long to put it on there, and so it's been abbreviated. This is what Jesus continues to do. And as one wise observer said, but there is a difference because in the gospel according to Luke, that's what Jesus did in his body. But in the book of Acts, this is what Jesus continued to do in his body. And therein lies the difference. You say, wait, wait a minute, you've totally confused me now. Well, the body of Jesus Christ in the gospel Uh, of Luke was uh, a man who, um, you know, Mediterranean, darker, olive-complective skin, I'm guessing 5'10", 175 pounds. I have no idea, but it was a real body. I think he was in good health because of all of his walking, and uh, I don't think he was a superhuman-looking individual, but fit right in. But the body of Christ in the book of Acts... It's very different. It's a little group here and a little group there. A group in Los Angeles, California and a group in Houston, Texas and a group in Lansing, Michigan and a group in Toronto, Canada. And That's the body of Christ. And they are living in those places, in Christ, in those places to be the body to do all that Jesus did, to continue to do what Jesus did. And so what did Jesus do? Study the Gospels. And what did he, through the apostles, tell the church to do? We study the book of Acts. And we find out that the church is to be doing all of the work of Christ under the head in cooperation with one another. In fact, it's very interesting. Acts chapter 2 talks about the church meeting together and then in larger groups in the temple and then in smaller groups from house to house. They met every day, verse 46 of Acts 2. They met and broke bread every day in their homes and they met in the temple courts. So there's the larger gathering and there's the smaller gathering. And we need both to be the church. The church has to gather together for times of worship and inspiration. But then it needs to leave this building and be the church in its local community, in its neighborhood. Coordinated, unified, not in competition, but supporting one another. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 2, and in some sense, that's all introduction to what brings us to verse 11. Remember that in the church at Ephesus, there were two large groups, two ethnic groups, the Jews and those who weren't Jews. We call them the Gentiles. And Paul already hinted at this in chapter 1, that in Christ, we were also chosen, and you were included in Christ. So he's talking about the two groups coming together, but now he lays the problem before them all. He said in verse 11, remember that formerly you Gentiles by birth were called the uncircumcised by those who were circumcised. That's like saying one group says, we're the godly and you're the ungodly. We're the intelligentsia and you're the ignoramuses. They said it to hurt one another. They called them dogs. They wouldn't even pass by the same side of the road. They wouldn't enter into, the Jews wouldn't enter into the Gentiles' house, and sometimes even walking by them, they would spit after they walked by. They despised them. The Gentiles had a running start in a relationship with God because he chose them to be his own people and he, he gave them the law and he gave them the covenants and he gave them the ordinances and the sacrifices but they sinned, they rejected him for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. They had special revelation, and they rejected it. The Gentiles had general revelation. They didn't have all the covenants, as we read further in verse 12. They were separate from Christ, alienated from him, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants. They were without God, but yet they saw God by way of general revelation in all of creation, and they rejected that. So the scripture says in Romans chapter 3, both Jew and Gentile all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul throws them all into one collective group of sinners. But notice verse 14 of chapter 2. You who were far away have been brought near by the blood, for Christ is our peace, and he has made the two one. Who is that? Jew and Gentile. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's abolished in his body the law with its commandments and regulations. And his purpose was to create one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in his one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. You see, God wants to reconcile you to himself so that then you'll be reconciled to one another. And not only only is the church called the body of Christ, it's a new entity, the church is also called a new community. It's a new society. Created by the cross and the mercy and grace of God. So that now we read in Galatians chapter 3, And verse 24, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male or female. Are those distinctions still valid? Yes, they are. They still exist. But everyone is leveled as a sinner at the foot of the cross, and we can only be reconciled to God by Christ. And when we're reconciled to God, we should immediately be reconciled to other believers. And therein lies the problem. For God has made the church to be an alternative community in this world that separates to live in different neighborhoods to show the world what Christ is like. And yet the church is often broken and fractured. It's interesting, when God created man, he created an individual. When God created woman, He created something entirely different. One little girl was doing a paper on the creation of God, creation of man by God, and she said, God created man and looked at him and said, I can do better. (laughs) I live in a family with that philosophy. But when God created woman, he didn't create just another individual, he created community. When he created man, he created an individual. When he created woman, he created community. And community was to build together in God to represent him even on planet Earth. But man's sin, we've fallen into sin, and now society is fractured. And you talk about being isolated and uh, divided with hostility and hatred. You're talking about American society today. What's the answer? If someone was lost and didn't know Christ as their savior, and I said, what is the answer? You would say, Christ. (laughs) But when we see our society all broken and fractured, and someone says, what's the answer? We sometimes pause and take a while to come back with the very same answer, Christ. Because we think as individuals and not as community. And maybe it's because our churches are so broken that we fail to come confidently forward with the answer, Jesus Christ. I think one of the greatest tragedies in America today is that there's so many people attending churches who are not the body of Christ, they're not living out the commands of Christ, and they themselves are fractured. And when the world sees an unhealthy situation, it simply says, if that's what the church is, I want nothing to do with it. The body of Christ is to be a place where Christ dwells. And community is healthy. And there's something attractive about that because everyone has been made for community. We find our fullness in Christ, and in a sense, Christ finds his completeness in the church as the church lives as the body of Christ, filling up his sufferings and carrying out his mission. Because he's not here physically. He is here in us to work through us to reach a lost and dying world. So be the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when I read these wonderful descriptions of who we are and what we ought to be, I am amazed that we have drifted so far. We have many thing, good things going on in the church, but often we fail to simply be Christ in our community, Christ in our neighborhood. So help us to grab once again this great vision that your eternal plan is to be carried out by your church. It's the place where you want to demonstrate your glory. It's the place where you want to reveal your manifold wisdom. And if we're not doing what we're called to do, you are the one who are shortchanged. You are the one who gets the black eye. You are the one people reject. Heavenly Father, the body cannot function unless each member is doing its part. So help us to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. For there is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all and one body. And may we live for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.